What an exciting day in the house of the Lord. Uh, I hope that you have enjoyed your time here so far in uh, attending Sunday school and diving deep into the Word of God. To do so is a great blessing, it's a great privilege as we gather to hear God's word together, to apply God's word together, uh, ultimately that we might go and live out God's word together. And so I hope you made it a priority this morning. This isn't to to place guilt or shame upon you, but it's just such a great time of encouragement. Uh, And as we sang songs together uh, this morning, uh, on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. That's, that's our hope this morning. That's our, our, our plea this morning. That's why we've gathered this morning. So I hope you're excited. I hope uh, you're ready to dive into God's Word this morning. Uh, this morning we are beginning a new four-week series through the month of February, through our time of fasting and praying together. Uh, this series is called Church Matters. Uh, Brother Kevin introduced it a few weeks ago to you. And we're, for the next four weeks, asking and answering some, some questions that you might have or may have at one time had. Or maybe people are asking you these questions. So... Uh, We're asking these four questions. Why should I participate in the ordinances in my local church? Why should I covenant with my local church? Why should I serve my local church, in my local church? And why should I give to my local church? And so that's our series for the next four weeks. That's where you know where we're going. Uh, You can prepare your hearts in this way. Uh, This morning we are going to look at the first question. Why should I participate in the ordinances in my local church? And so before we do that, before we dive in together, I just want to pray one more time over us uh, that God would do great things among his people. So join me as we pray. Father, again, we are thankful, thankful for the opportunity to gather, to make much of you. I pray that you have been pleased uh, with our studies this morning, uh, with our application of your holy word this morning. As we sing together this morning, as we've prayed to you, called out to you, Father, we are in desperate need of you. Uh, We we need you to move in the hearts of the lost. We need you to move in the hearts of your people. Uh, If change will happen, it will be because of your spirit working in your people. And so we confess this morning, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Father, we are not standing upon our family. We're not standing upon our money, our careers. We gather this morning not standing upon our works, but we are standing on Christ, the solid rock. And we pray that you would be faithful to us. Father, as we dive into your word, as we look at the the great two ordinances that you have given us, baptism and the Lord's Supper, uh, Father, speak to us. Convict us by your Spirit. Make us much like Christ, more like Christ today, Father. We might leave uh, conformed into the image of Christ. Help us to be great ambassadors of your great gospel as we sit in here today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. It's always weird when you can hear yourself while you're talking. I don't know how Brother Kevin does this every week, but it's weird. So, uh, sorry, I'll try not to distract myself. So... Uh, So if you're taking notes this morning, the first question we want to look at this morning is, why should I participate in the ordinances in my local church? As Christians, as Bible believers, we believe that the Lord has commanded us to partake in two ordinances uh, that he gave to the local church. We call these baptism and the Lord's Supper. 
And while Jesus in his life on this earth gave us many commands that we should follow, that we should obey, all of these commands are important. The commands that he gave us to partake of baptism and the Lord's Supper together are of utmost importance because they serve as means to visibly portray to us the gospel. And so our goal this morning as we look at baptism and the Lord's Supper, we want to see how these visually represent the gospel and what are the implications they have on our hearts and in our lives. And so that's our goal this morning. I have a quote up here for you to see from J.I. Packer. In the quote, he uses the word sacrament. If you're not familiar with these terms, ordinance and sacrament, they're kind of used interchangeably in the Christian world. Most Christians have gotten away from the word sacrament to, to avoid any confusion with the sacraments or sacrificial system or uh, any, any way related to salvific means. And so we, we use the word ordinances. These are things that Jesus ordained for his people to do in the context of the local church. So just to avoid any confusion, he says this, as the preaching of the word makes the gospel audible, that's what's happening right now, so the sacraments or the ordinances make it visible visible and God stirs up faith by both means. Sacraments strengthen faith by correlating Christian beliefs with the testimonies of our senses. And maybe for some of you you're real visual learners more than you are just sitting through a lecture and this is what God is doing through the ordinances. He is visually showing us the gospel. And so what we find in baptism, what we find in the Lord's Supper, is that the Lord is continually helping, continually helping to reshape or to, to focus our thoughts on the gospel. We, we can easily get distracted in this world. There's a lot of things to distract us. And what the, the Lord does through the, the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper is to reorient our focus. They are meant to remind us of our need for Christ. They are meant to not just be symbols, but to be neon signs that are pointing to the gospel. Trust in Jesus. Trust in the work of Jesus. And so this is what we see in the, the two ordinances. We, we must remember as we study this morning, as we think about baptism, as we think about the Lord's Supper, both of which we'll partake in this morning, after the sermon, while we think about these two ordinances, we must remember that nothing is happening in terms of salvation this morning. There are some denominations, particularly we think about the Catholics, who believe that there is special grace in a way, in a salvific way. That salvation is happening when someone is baptized for the first time. That returning to the table week after week is maintaining that salvation. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's my goal this morning is to show you that these are instead means of grace to God's people. In other words, when I say means of grace... What I'm saying is, baptism and the Lord's Supper, doing so properly in a manner worthy of the gospel, which we'll talk about in a minute, we become recipients of God's grace in a special way. That we experience God's goodness, God's grace in a special way. And, and when I say this special way, like I don't want you to get the wrong idea that something weird and supernatural kind of is happening. No, no, no. God is using these things for means of grace. For example, you and I should be praying without ceasing. That's what Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians, right? You and I should be praying at home, praying with our families at home. We should be bathed in prayer. But I don't think any of you would deny that when you gather on Wednesday night with God's people, the same people you're praying 
about and for throughout the week. You're praying to the same God, but something different happens on Wednesday night. That is God's means of grace to his people. He is using our time together in prayer to, to give us not a special dose of grace in a special way, but to enrich our, our, our hearts, our lives as we, we contemplate the great grace of God through the fellowship with his people. And so there's something special that happens when God's people gather, particularly for prayer. And in this way, something special is happening as we consider baptism and the Lord's Supper this morning. So, uh, those will serve as our two main points this morning. Point number one, baptism. Point number two, the Lord's Supper. Under each of these, we have three subpoints. And so, my goal as we consider, <clears throat> excuse me, as we consider these two ordinances, is to think about the implications they have on our lives from three different perspectives. My, my goal in each ordinance is to look back on the finished work of Christ in the past, to look forward to the, the future, what's happening when Christ returns, and the implications of that, and then how it affects us as we live right now. In 2023, February 5th. What, what, are, what are the things that are practical for us? And so, our two points, the baptism and the Lord's Supper. The first is baptism. You notice in our church covenant, I have this on the screen for you to see. We, we wrote this, in observing believers being baptized by immersion, we would be reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and his promise that for those who identify him will be resurrected with him. And so as we consider what our covenant says, we already see two of the perspectives, right? Look at the past perspective. We will be reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's past tense. That's happened in the past. That was at Calvary. And then we also see the future that we will be reminded of his promise that those who identify him will also be resurrected with him. So we see two perspectives immediately as we consider baptism. So let's, let's look at the first. The, the first sub-point is we must trust in the gospel. As we think about baptism, baptism shows us that we must trust in the gospel. Baptism points to the past. It points to the cross, to, to the grave. Baptism points back to the fact that we are sinners in front of an angry God who hates sin. He is holy. He is righteous. And when baptism gives us a picture that we are unholy and unworthy in front of an almighty holy God. And so baptism reminds us, Ephesians chapter 2, that we were dead in the sins and trespasses in which we once walked. This is what baptism gives us a picture of. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 through 4, I delivered to you as of first importance, which I also received. What did he deliver that was of great importance? Christ died for our sins. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried and he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And so baptism is pointing us to the finished work of Christ in the gospel. It's reminding us of the death of Christ. But baptism also shows us that not only did Christ die, that we can identify with Christ in his death. The, the gospel is not just bad news, the gospel is also good news. That we can identify with Christ in his death. This is what it shows visually. Just as Christ died and rose again, when we are dunked into the water by immersion, when we are fully submersed in water, this is a picture of death. 
This is a picture of you and I identifying with Christ. That Christ died for our sins. And we want that Christ who died to be our substitute. And so that's happening in the immersion. In the sinking. Uh, not sinking in that way. But in, in the going in under the water. Uh, it's a great picture of our union with Christ. Romans 6.3 says this. Paul says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. So baptism is a picture of the past finished work of Christ and our identifying with him. Likewise in Colossians chapter 2 it says this In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh He's saying no more circumcision, that's past, but the present is this the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you who were dead in the trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, listen, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us of all trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. With all of its legal demands, he set aside, nailing it to the cross. This is what baptism shows us. That when we watch someone being baptized, we are seeing visually a picture of the gospel. Our identifying with Christ in death. Our being made alive together with Christ. Having forgiven us of all our trespasses. Notice also in this passage, I just want to point this out. It's not in my notes. It says, in which you were also raised with him through faith. Baptism doesn't save We are saved by grace through faith. Baptism represents this faith. As we are buried with him in baptism, we are also raised with him through faith. And so this is what uh, baptism shows. We must trust in the gospel. When someone is baptized, we see we must trust in the finished work of Christ in the gospel. Not only does baptism show us that we need to trust in the finished work of Christ, but it also shows us, this is our second sub-point, that we need to place our hope in the gospel. So we think about trust, we think about the past work of Christ, now we're thinking about the future, the, the hope that we are placing in the gospel. Notice the second part of the covenant, it says, His promise that for those who identify Him will be resurrected with Him. And so, as we are, we are baptizing people, as Jenna and Clark will be baptized in a few minutes, they're going down into the water, but they don't stay there, right? That, that becomes crime, right? <laughs> we don't leave people in the water. We bring people back up. And visually, what we are seeing is that those who die with Christ do not stay dead. If anyone will follow after Christ, he promises resurrection. And so baptism is this picture as when this person comes out of the water, as the water drains off their bodies, that they have been, that are promised a resurrection with Christ. That those who die in Christ will not stay dead. Baptism is pointing us to the fact that we will one day see Christ face to face. Baptism is pointing us to the fact that our faith will one day be sight. And baptism is just this visual reminder of the gospel. We're dying with Christ. We're rising with Christ again one day soon. 
Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that, listen, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, listen, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in death like his, we shall certainly we no doubt will be united with him in a resurrection just like his. This is the hope of the gospel that we place our, our hope in. And so what we see is the gospel is not just interesting facts about some dude who lived 2,000 years ago. No, no, no. The gospel is a promise. The gospel is a promise that he who died for us longs for us to be with him. And that he will one day come again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 Paul says, if in Christ we have hope in this life also, we are all people most to be pitied. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have fallen asleep. For as death comes by one man, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. The gospel is about resurrection. And baptism serves as this great picture telling us to place our hope in the future and the promises of God to be fulfilled. What baptism shows us is that we're living in an already but not yet state. In other words, we've been saved, we've been justified, we have salvation, but God is also continuing at this moment saving us, right? We have been saved, we are being saved, but there's a future salvation coming. There's coming a day when we will be saved from all that this world has to offer. And we will be in the presence of a great and holy God. And so baptism is serving as this already but not yet state. We're in this transition period, if you will. Waiting for the fulfillment of the promise. Being with Christ face to face. And so we see we must trust in, in the past, the finished work of Christ. We must place our hope in the future work of Christ. But how does this affect us in the presence? This is uh, in the present. This is point number C. We must fellowship in the gospel. Not only does baptism serve to uh, to show that we are united with Christ, baptism serves to show that you have united with Christ people. That baptism is your way of identifying not only with Jesus but with Jesus's people. In fact, when Paul, in Ephesians chapter 4, he talks about maintaining um, the, the peace that comes, uh, the unity through the bonds of peace, through the Spirit. He, for, or for reason, he uses verses 4 and 5. He says, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father who is over all and through all and in all. 1 Corinthians 12, he would say the same thing. Have we not all been baptized into the same body? The goal of baptism shows that we have united with Christ, but we have also united with Christ's people. And I have a great quote on the screen for you to see. Uh, Bobby Jameson in his little booklet writes this. In baptism, two parties speak and two parties commit. In baptism... You, the candidate, is asking for welcome, and the church extends it. In baptism, you are pledging yourself to the church, and as a result, the church is pledging itself to you. Baptism brings your life into the light of the church's loving concern. Baptism sets you within the strengthening and the sustaining communion of Christ's people. 
And so baptism serves to you new believer with the local church. The new believer is declaring that their sins have been forgiven by a holy God. That they are sinners who need salvation from Christ. They are declaring that they want to trust in the same gospel that we trust in. They are declaring that we're going to place our hope in the same hope that you are placing your hope in. And so baptism is a way to, to show that they are covenanting with the local church. It's like if this was a team, if we were playing football together, we're all wearing the same jersey. When someone is baptized, it's showing, again, they're uniting with Christ, but also with his people. They're putting on the same game jersey. They're on our team. And this is good news for you and I. As we bring in new believers into the local church. And so I hope these past, future, and present ways of thinking about baptism are helpful. And as a way to help you even further, here are some some ways that we can apply the things that we've learned. As we think about baptism, the first question we ask ourselves is this. Have we been baptized? That's an easy question for some of us. Many of us will say yes. But, But some of us live in this state where we've been saved but not baptized. What we see throughout Scripture, continually throughout the New Testament, when someone places trust in Christ, they are commanded to repent and be baptized. Not that baptism saves, but because baptism shows so clearly the picture of their death and resurrection with Christ, the the command is always repent and be baptized. In the Great Commission, what does Jesus say? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples. Listen. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We see, and there are many other commands in Scripture, that we see... That baptism is one of the first acts of obedience for a new believer. And so if you you sit here this morning and you've been saved but not baptized, we, we see that this is a commandment to make disciples and then to baptize them. As we consider what Paul wrote in Romans, as we consider what he wrote in Colossians, what we see is in the first century, it would be foreign to anybody there that someone could be saved and not baptized. And so he writes about baptism in such a way as assuming that every Christian has been baptized. One of my favorite quotes from Mark Dever. I love Mark Dever. This is my favorite. Getting wet is the easiest command Jesus ever gave us to follow. It will only get harder from there. And so for you, if you've not been baptized... I think about the eunuch in Acts chapter 8. You remember he's sitting in the chariot. He's reading Isaiah. He doesn't know what's happening. God sends Philip. Philip explains the gospel. And the eunuch in chapter 8, he sees water. He stops the chariot. And he says this. He says, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And so if you sit here as a, as a believer who has not been baptized, the question is this. What prevents you from being obedient to the commands of Jesus? Secondly, if you have been baptized, I want you to see, hopefully you've seen, that baptism is not just a means of grace for the individual, but a means of grace for the church as a whole. Wayne Grudem says this, he says, where there is genuine faith, 
on the part of the person being baptized and where the faith of the church that watches the baptism is stirred up and encouraged by this ceremony, then the Holy Spirit certainly does work through baptism. And baptism becomes a means of grace through which the Holy Spirit brings blessing to the person being baptized and to the church as well. So listen, baptism is not an individual act. When a believer is baptized... That is a local church thing. That means when you and I watch baptism as we will this morning, we must watch with joy. We must be celebrating what God is doing in the hearts of that new believer. Also celebrating what God has done in the hearts of us. As we watch a believer going down into the water, identifying with Christ in death, as he's being brought up or she's being brought up to reflect that they, have been, they will one day be resurrected with Christ, we must also be thankful for the work that God has done in our heart. But, but not only just thankful and celebrating, brothers and sisters, when you see a believer being baptized, this is an opportunity for you to pray for them. New believers will go through many trials and tribulations. The, the world will be pulling back at them, trying to bring them in. This is a time for you to identify with the newly baptized person by praying. Become a prayer warrior. Pray that God would keep them from, from the world, keep them from trials, keep them from tribulations. We must not only pray for them, let us also encourage them. It's worth it. You've counted the cost. you followed Christ. It will be worth it. When we see someone baptized, let us reach out to them. Let us seek to bring them into the fellowship of God's people. And perhaps, maybe we commit to discipling them. To maturing them in the faith. They would not stay uh, feeble Christians, but they would, they would be brought on to maturity. And it's in these ways that baptism serves as, a, as an act as a means of grace for the entire church as we are coming together to celebrate what God is doing. So, that's the great ordinance of baptism. And now secondly, let us look to the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. Again, our covenant says this, partaking of the Lord's Supper together helps us remember the past work of Christ on the cross, his present work as mediator at the Father's right hand, and his future work when he returns for his people. Again, we see the three different perspectives, past, present, and future. And so we'll use those as our breakdown concerning the Lord's Supper. So, let us first, A, we must remember the gospel. The Lord's Supper is a visual reminder of the death of Christ on you and I's behalf. The, the bread, the wine, the juice, these things serve to remind us of the body and the blood of Jesus. That, that when the bread is broken, we are to remember that Christ's body was broken for us. When, when the juice is, is poured out, we don't pour it out into cups, but when we pour it out into our mouth, right? We are to remember that the blood of Christ has been poured out for us. And these elements in the Lord's Supper, the, the bread, the wine, the juice, these things serve to uh, remind us of the death of Christ. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 through 25. We say this the first Sunday of every month as we partake of the Lord's Supper. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said this, this is my body, which is given 
for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, verse 25, he also took the cup after supper saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so the Lord's Supper, therefore, is a great reminder for us to remember the gospel. To remember the work of Christ on the cross. That he died for us. That he was our substitute. That he died a real death. Audrey Sequeria says this, he says, This act of remembering is not just a mere mental activity. It's a remembering that redefines and shapes who we are. As we remember the work of Christ, he says this, it cancels our self-centered life stories and places us inside a new and far grander narrative. This is what Jesus means. Do this of me. We're not just remembering some past experience. We're, we're, We're redefining and shaping who we are based upon who we are, our identity in Christ. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, we are to be reminded of our sin before a holy God. To be reminded of the mercy and grace that God would have, that he would send Christ to die for us. To be broken for us. We should be reminded of the work of Christ to be our substitute. And we should be encouraged by the security of our salvation that we find because of his death, burial, and resurrection. This is how we remember the gospel as we partake of the Lord's Supper. But not only do we look to the past, remembering the finished work of of Christ, the Lord's Supper also reminds us that there's a future. Therefore, we must proclaim the gospel. This is point B. The same passage, Paul would say, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So what Paul says here is this. The Lord's Supper is an opportunity for you and I to proclaim the gospel. As we we stand together, as we eat of the bread, as we drink the juice, we are proclaiming the gospel to one another. We are proclaiming that Jesus died for our sins and his death was sufficient. And, and, and Paul says we must proclaim this until the Lord comes again. So the first Sunday of every month as we're partaking of the Lord's Supper together, we are proclaiming together this great gospel. We are, we are proclaiming that he is worthy of all honor, praise, and glory. And in doing so, he says this, proclaiming until the Lord comes again. Therefore, we are to set our eyes upon the future. That there's coming a day when we will see him again, face to face. That the meal we share now, each, each Sunday of the first Sunday of the month, one day we will share this meal with Jesus himself. Uh, the, the lyrics we just sang, we hunger for the day when with Christ we stand in glory. When we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are thinking about that day. The day when Christ returns. Jesus says in the Lord's Supper in Matthew chapter 26, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Oh, we see a promise here. The Lord said this bread, this this wine that you're partaking in disciples, there's coming a day I will drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. Not here on earth, in his kingdom. And so the Lord's Supper is a promise. Jesus is making a promise that he longs to share the meal with us face to face. 
This is reason to proclaim this glorious gospel. I love Revelation chapter 19. We think about this this future dinner with the Lord. It says this in verse 6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give Him glory. Why? For the marriage of the Lamb has come. His bride was made, has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen. He's talking about us, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And listen to verse 9. And the angel said this to me. Write this down, John. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the angel said to me, these are the true words of God. This is what we're thinking about as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. The Lord's Supper is begging us not to lose hope in the gospel. The Lord's Supper is begging us that yes, trials are coming. Yes, tribulations coming. It will be worth it. Cling to, cling to Christ because there is a day that he will share this with you face to face. And this is the beauty of the Lord's Supper. That the meal that we will share with him will be the best meal that you and I cannot even imagine. I love Chinese food. The, 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 the marriage supper will be better than Chinese food. It's hard to imagine. But this is the beauty of the gospel. We're looking forward to the day that we will sit at the same table, dine with our Savior who died for us. It will be a glorious day. And so as we partake of the Lord's Supper, we, we're thinking about the past, the finished work of Christ. We're looking forward to the future work of Christ. But the Lord's Supper is also meant to be a present action. This is point number C. We must examine our lives in light of the gospel. We think about the past work of Christ. We think about his future work. Now we think about his current work as a mediator. We must examine our lives in light of the gospel. Paul says in verses 27 through 29 of 1 Corinthians 11, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Therefore, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. So the Lord's Supper is not only about us reflecting upon the past, this this remembering the work of Christ. It's not only us focusing, pointing our eyes ahead, thinking about the future supper. But it's also a present activity where we think about our lives in light of the gospel. It's a time for us to be honest with ourselves. How is the understanding of the death of Christ changing the way we live in the present? How is the idea that one day we will share a future meal with Christ changing our lives now? How is it conforming us into the image of Christ today? See, this is the things that we are thinking about as we examine ourselves. We examine ourselves in two ways. We ask ourselves, how is our relationship with God? And then we ask ourselves, how is our relationship with others? Again, just like baptism is not meant to be some individualistic act, but that it's a whole local church participating, so was the Lord's Supper. 
And it's easy sometimes as we partake of the Lord's Supper together, right? We, we stand in our pews and we look forward and we listen. We wait for the cue to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And it's easy for us to think that this is just between me and God. What the Bible tells us is no. The Lord's Supper is meant to be a family meal. That we're rejoicing together. We're celebrating together. Therefore, we must examine our lives in relationship with one another. This is what the Lord's Supper does for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 17, Paul says this, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. This is a family meal. So when we partake of the Lord's Supper together, as we will soon do, we must remember that this ordinance is not just between you and God. It's between you and God's people. It's a time for us to remember corporately the work of the gospel in our lives in the past. Thinking about the, the supper together, the future supper where all of us will sit around the same table. And it's a time for us to examine how our relationships are with one another. Audrey Sicurio says this again. He says, We cannot claim to be remembering Christ's sacrifice at the Lord's Supper without recognizing how that sacrifice unites us to one another. Listen carefully. In fact, he says, To despise fellow church members at the Lord's Supper is to despise the Lord's death and even to despise the Lord himself. What Audrey's saying is this. He says, don't think just because it's, you think it's between you and God that your relationships on the horizontal level are not affecting your relationship with God on a vertical level. To despise those around you by thinking it, and, and then thinking you are holy between just you and God, you are despising the Lord himself. You are contradicting the whole idea of the Lord's Supper together. And as we think about the present, I think about this quote I have on the screen for you to see as well. It says, the Lord's Supper shows that at the present, I, as an individual, am walking with the Lord. It shows that as a body, we together are walking in a unity that proclaims truth about who Christ is. And I love this next part. It's a snapshot of the heavenly congregation as best as we can tell. Again, only God knows the heart of, of, of his people. Both who is participating now and how we are relating to each other. So in the moment that we are taking the Lord's Supper together, it, it's like a Polaroid. It's the best representation we have now of what heaven will look like. That as people are examining their relationship with God, as they are examining their relationships with others, as they are confessing sin to a holy God, it's the best picture that we get of what heaven will be like, surrounded by God's people. And so with that, as we think about the past work of Christ, as we look forward to the future work of Christ, as we think about our lives in light of the gospel now, it leads us to a time of application, a time of what does this examining look like? And it's perfect because we're about to partake of the Lord's Supper together. So I came up with some questions that I think are helpful for me and I hope will be helpful for you as we consider the Lord's Supper together. It's not an exhaustive list, but here it is. The first question we ask ourselves is this, how is my relationship with God? As we think about this, we're asking questions like, am I taking God's word and his commandments serious? Am I reading his word and am I confessing the sin that's in my life? 
Am I clinging to the hope of God? Are there sins right now that I need to confess before God? Am I trusting in anything other than Jesus to save me from my sin? This is what happens. This is what we're doing as we partake of the Lord's Supper together. Not only how is my relationship with God, but also how is my relationship with others? I broke it down into four sections. We have the local church. As we're eating together, we're looking around at those around us. How is my relationship with God's people? Then we look at our family. How is our relationship with those around us in our homes? Our families know us in a way that the local church does not. How is that relationship? Then we have our co-workers. Those that we spend, for some of us, we spend more time in the workplace than we do at home. How is our relationship with those around us in the workplace? And lastly, what about our relationship with our neighbors? Not just physical neighbors, but those throughout the world. Those we're meeting at Rouse's. Those we see at Walmart. Those who are pulling out in front of us in, in the traffic. Right? How is our relationship with others? And as we think about these others, as we think about the local church, our family, about neighbors, ask yourself questions like this. Am I being patient? Am I being loving? Am I serving others or do I only want them to serve me? Am I committing my life to a life of discipleship? Am I discipling my children? Am I discipling those who are being saved in the workplace, in, in the nations? Am I sharing the gospel? These are questions that help to, to find the sin in our lives, the sin in our hearts. And so this morning as we're, just a few seconds, are going to partake of the Lord's Supper, I hope some of these questions will be helpful to you as you examine your lives in light of the gospel. That way you don't, you don't drink and eat judgment upon yourself. That way you're not doing so without considering the body of Christ. He says, uh, let's ourself then and so eat of the bread and the cup for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself so discern the body discern the body of Christ and the reason why our relationships with others is so important I have one last verse on the screen for you to see Matthew chapter 5 our relationships with each other affect drastically our relationship with God. It says this, Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says this, If you are offering your guilt, gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. Go. First, he says, be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. What Jesus is showing us is that our relationships affect our relationship. First John, you cannot love God and yet say you hate God's people. It doesn't work. That's First John. So with that, would you join me as we pray together and then we'll, we'll transition to partake together. Father, I thank you. I thank you for your goodness that is seen visibly in baptism and in the Lord's Supper. Oh God, you are a faithful God to your people.
Lord, I thank you for the picture of baptism, that you've called people to be saved, to be baptized, that they might visibly, vis- visibly show that they are identifying with you in the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ, and that they are identifying with God's people. I thank you for the Lord's Supper, that we are reminded so often of the gospel. That Christ died for our sins. That his body was broken for our sins. I pray, Father, as we transition, as we we observe together this great ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And then afterwards we get to partake in baptism together. Father, I pray that you would be working in the hearts of your people. Help us to be men and women of great gratitude for the work that you have done in our lives. Help us to be men and women who are eager to fellowship with one another because of the fellowship that we have with you. I pray that you would help us as we examine our lives, as we examine our hearts this morning. Father, point out our sin. Point out the areas that we've been blind in that you might receive glory as we confess sin, as we rid ourselves of sin, as we desire to be like Christ. And so I pray that you would work in our hearts this morning. In Christ's name. Amen.